Romans 11, verse 33, through the end of the chapter, 33 through 36. This is God's word given to us for our good. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. I wanted to take some time this summer pausing from our study in the Belgic Confession to look at a couple of different things in Scripture that are good for the Christian life, that are good for our growth together as a congregation. And tonight, and for the next at least week or two after this, we will be thinking about the topic of worship. We're focusing, of course, worship encapsulates all of the Christian life. We're called to to give our bodies as living sacrifices. And so all that we do is part and parcel of our worship. But we're going to be thinking about it specifically as we come together on the Lord's Day to worship our God, to receive the benefits of Christ as they are given to us in word and sacrament as we join in song and gather together as the people of God. One thing that that we know about our age in worship is that uh, there, there, there's a lot going on and there, there's, a, there's a wide gamut of things that happen in the church with regards to worship. Most of us would say there's a lot of things that happen in the church that are much too frivolous or highly produced uh, things that happen in worship. There's a, a Christian satire online magazine that tends to poke fun at this, the way that, that the church can become uh, overly so, a, a production kind of atmosphere. Was scrolling through uh, their articles this week, of course, is the Babylon Bee, perhaps uh, you read this, but they were um, poking fun at some of the things in the church. One of the articles was titled, Church Tech Team Introduces Helpful Bouncing Sing-Along Ball. I don't know if you've ever been where it's just the words that are on the screen and not the music, and you're wondering when you're supposed to sing the next word, and you're not really sure what the note is that you're supposed to hit with the next word. And so uh, this, of course, is Christian satire, not for real, but satire, they're saying, Well, the answer that one church had was to have the ball that bounces on the words uh, so people know when to sing what comes next. Another one, uh, church tech guy completes historic perfect church service. Every church tech guy can relate to that one, knowing that things uh, can go wrong here and there. Here's one uh, that's probably uh, sad, Uh, not that it's true, but local church adds pew back entertainment 
consoles. Sad for pastors, as they're reminded. We've all sat through boring sermons before, and perhaps one day a church might do something like that, just to keep people entertained during the pastor's boring sermon. These things partially ring true, and of course, as, as Reformed folks, we can look at a lot of the things that go on and say, well, that's, there's silliness, so much silliness in the church, frivolity, people messing around, and people making a mockery of what it means to worship our God. Reformed tradition has always prized having Scripture not only uh, guide us in worship, but regulate our worship. What is it that Scripture commands us to do? We speak historically about the regulative principle of worship, which is all the things that we do in worship need to be uh, expressly commanded by God. That's why uh, dramas or artistic expressions of of various kinds, we don't do that in our worship service because it's not directly commanded by Scripture. And the things that we do need to be regulated by Scripture. But on the other hand, though we have the lion's share of the best doctrine in the history of the church, though we have this beautiful system around the gospel that exalts the the, the glory and the grace of God, the doctrines of grace, Uh, the beautiful doctrines that we hold so dear, uh, we are often in danger of another error. There's another error that can find its home in our hearts. It's not about being too fluffy. It's not about being frivolous. But uh, we can often lack the heartfelt devotion and love that all true worshipers of God must have. Heartfelt devotion, love, and adoration of God. If the church becomes too formalistic, notice I didn't say formal, but formalistic, concentrating too much on just checking the right boxes and doing all of the right things, we come under the danger of lacking, if all of our focus is on checking the right boxes, lacking the heartfelt devotion that we need before God. This was a a common way of God to speak to Old Testament Israel. And what what he was noticing was that they're full of all this religiosity, but their hearts were far from God. Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord says this to Israel, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of meetings. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, right? When you, get, when you even become emotional and showy, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. So there is this, this danger that we have. We need to check and see whether or not we have to go along with our right teaching, to go along with our beautiful doctrine, do we have the heartfelt devotion that all true worshipers of God must have? See, right doctrine and traditions that are good do not negate a worshiping heart. Rather, right doctrine must flow. It must flow into the heart of a true worshiper that takes great delight in worshiping God, that takes great delight in gathering around his word, that takes great delight in exalting his name. If you go back and you read our own forefathers in the Reformed tradition, their writings are full 
of this kind of language. John Owen, who's a personal hero of mine, probably the theologian I've read the most, he talks a lot about how we are to take great delight in the worship of God, to take great delight in being in the midst of God's people, not being caught up in outward forms or to make a fleshly man-centered production. And you can make mistakes on that on either side, right? You see, uh, in many ways, uh, the, the modern church that that makes a fleshly outward production. Then you could see a tradition like Roman Catholicism that's very showy in all of its stuff and it gets caught up in the same kind of formalism. So not outward forms, but rather to delight in how God glorifies himself, especially when his people are gathered under the simplicity of the means of grace, of word, and of prayer. And that is what we want We want heads and hearts to be engaged in the true worship of God. Head and heart, knowledge and love, truth and devotion. And to keep those two in a wonderful balance, knowing that that is what we are seeking as worshipers. So here's our central truth tonight. Any true knowledge of God necessitates a posture of reverence and holy fear before him. Any true knowledge of God necessitates a posture of reverence and holy fear before him. And here's the goal of tonight's sermon and and perhaps the next couple sermons as well. That our minds, that our head and heart would be united in knowledge and love for God so that we would be a joyfully reverent worshiping congregation. I've titled this sermon, Gravity and Gladness. I, I've taken that from, from a pastor who has spoken about this topic, uh, John Piper. Gravity and Gladness. Gravity refers to reverence, refers to the seriousness of worship. There must be gravity to what we do. It is weighty. It is serious. God is nothing to be messed with. And yet at the same time, there ought to be joy. There ought to be great joyfulness and rejoicing in what God has done as the mighty and glorious and powerful one who has saved us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so tonight, we're going to think about reverence, we're going to think about gravity mainly, and then next week we'll move on to think about having joy. But that's what we're going for. When we are, are thinking about who we are as, as worshipers, as worshiping people, as a worshiping congregation, we are to make it our goal to be a joyfully reverent worshiping people with gravity and gladness, head and heart united in the worship of our one true God. So first, worship is not a choice. So we must choose the only proper object of worship. Worship is not a choice. All human beings will worship something. And so we must choose the only proper object of worship, and that is the God of Scripture. Paul begins this passage. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul has this this awesome statement he opens with this this sort of doxology. We have to understand the context of of where Paul has arrived at this point in Romans. How did he get to this point of bursting forth in this doxology? Well, in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, he's working out the doctrine of election. And he's doing that as it relates to his own people, the nation of Israel. 
So that's the immediate context. The larger context is at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, Paul is, is summarizing or he's, he's summing up, he's arriving at the end of this grand discourse on salvation, the gospel of God. He starts, of course, proclaiming the sinfulness of man, and then he talks about the grace of God, and then he talks about the work of Christ as it relates to the grace of God, and then he starts to talk about uh, issues in Romans 6 about how grace spurs us on to holy living. Romans 7, the Christian struggle against sin. Romans 8, uh, the, the, the eternal heavenly view of what it means to be found in Christ. So all of these truths on top of one another leading Paul to the end of Romans 11 where he bursts forth and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He speaks of wisdom and knowledge, but rather than expounding on them, rather than explaining them, Paul praises. He praises the depth, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. The point is that Paul cannot fathom God's depth of wisdom and knowledge, the riches thereof. God knows the end from the beginning. He has decreed all things that have or will come to pass. Each and every person who ever comes to believe the gospel, to exercise faith in Christ, is appointed by God's eternal decree of election. And the outcome of all things, every single thing that happens from the beginning of time until the last day, everything that happens has been shaped by God's decree so that it would be the best result of the glory of God. And Paul is looking at all of this. He's looking at the story of redemption, the sinfulness of man, the grace of God, and he can't help but burst forth. Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. See, Uh, It's surprising for Paul in many ways as a Jew trying to work out the election of God as it relates to the covenants, growing up one of the chosen people of God, living as a Pharisee, living as one who, as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, living as one who would have been more righteous than this neighbor and that neighbor. And then one day, Jesus Christ knocks him flat on his face on the road to Damascus and he bows down before the risen and exalted Lord. His life was changed. His life was changed. And so he's working out how, does, uh, how do the issues of my people, my ethnic people, those who have been chosen by God in some sense, how does it work that they have rejected Christ? And so Paul goes into this deep discussion of how election relates to the covenants and how uh, the, the covenants are these outward expressions of God's election working in and through the heart. And Paul looks at all of that, the gospel, the covenants, election, the glory of God, the decree of God. He says, how great is God? How great you are, God. How unsearchable are his judgments, Paul says. Can't search them out can't arrive at the end of him. His paths beyond tracing. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? This uh, language reminds me of the end of of the book of Job when God finally answers Job for the last time. And Job's been working out all the problems in his life and the sufferings he's going through. And God thunders forth in the presence of Job. 
He says things to Job like, Job, can you hold the Pleiades in your hand? Talking about the constellations in the sky. Can you hold the Pleiades in your hand? Can you loosen the cords of Orion? Of course, the answer is no. And Paul is saying, how great this God is. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. We cannot even fathom how great and how awesome this God is. And so, understanding even just a little bit, the truth about who this God is, understanding truly who he is, what he has done, means that we will approach him with deepest reverence. Deepest reverence. And our culture is allergic to reverence in many ways. Allergic to a claim like God is awesome. That God is nothing to be trifled with. That coming before him is a serious thing. That he is more serious and he is more dangerous than anything or anyone we could ever meet or ever imagine. Hebrews 10. It's a fearful thing, we read, to fall into the hands of the living God. And so when we think about who we are as worshipers, when we think about what it means to worship God, this primary category we need to have in our minds is one of reverence, of holy fear, that it's serious to come before the living God. It's serious to come before him in worship. It's not a time for messing around. I I read an article this week uh, in a magazine and it rung true in many ways for me. It suggested that if you, if you took most of what passes for worship in, in the church today, many people would get a sense that God is not holy, holy, holy. The song that we just sang, which is a song perhaps sung less than it ought to be. The sense is not that God is holy, 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 but rather that he is nice, nice, nice. How different is the picture that we receive in Scripture? Isaiah chapter 33. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Psalm 46. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. That psalm we just read tonight. He makes wars cease. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is a God of glorious perfections. Perfections that we cannot even fathom. All that he is, he always has been and he always will be. He doesn't develop at all. His character doesn't change. He doesn't become something he has not been. He's a God of glorious perfections. No potential, only being. That is the God that we worship, and that is the God before whom we come when we worship. Some people will say, well, if, if that's the truth, if God is so glorious, if God is so dangerous, if God is nothing to be messed with, why wouldn't it be best to just keep your distance? Well, that's, that's the rub, isn't it? That God has made us to be worshiping creatures. We're all going to worship something, and so we must worship the only proper object of worship, and that is the God of Scripture. That is the God of Scripture. In doing so, we will be bathed in reverence. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the reason that we were created. That's the reason that we were created, to glorify God. God created this world, in a sense, to go public with his glory. And one thing we need to understand is that God is supremely passionate about his glory. He's supremely passionate about exalting and magnifying his name. 
We're going to talk a little bit more next week about why God is not an egomaniac, even though that is the truth. God is supremely passionate about the glory of his own name. If you were to say that about a human being, it would be they would be egomaniacal, self-centered, obsessed with themselves, turned in on themselves. But not so with God. Because God is exactly the one that we need. Because God is the only thing who is supremely valuable. And so God can be supremely passionate for his glory and involving us in that life uh, for us and for our good. And we know that God is not doing so because he is self-centered. And so we read in Romans 11, Paul goes on to say, For from him and through him and to him are all things. We approach God with fear and holy reverence, understanding that all the things that he does, he does for the sake of his glory. And if God is all that we need, if we are to approach God with holy reverence and holy fear, if God truly satisfies every longing of the soul, then we are to pursue him. We are to pursue him. God has given us worship to address all of the deep spiritual needs that we have. Psalm 42 very famous psalm that we read or sing from time to time. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is thinking about the needs that he has. He's thinking about the emptiness that he feels. My soul is thirsting for God, and so he thinks about something. He thinks about Worship, verse 4 of Psalm 42. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is saying, if you want to be filled with your every need, if your soul is thirsting and panting for God, where do you go? You go into the midst of God's people and worship him. Lift high his name. See, something that we need to understand about worship is, is that it's sufficient as its own end. Many people approach worship today, that the worshiping hour, the time that the church is together, that needs to be about raising money or attracting crowds or getting all kinds of other things done, but the worship of God is sufficient in itself. If God truly is who he says he is, If we are truly to be that reverent before God, that filled with holy fear, that aware of how awesome he is, the worship of God is sufficient in itself. We don't need to gather for worship to do something else. We gather for worship to lift his name and to exalt him because he is good and his loving kindness endures forever. The worship of God is sufficient as its own end. Something else we need to understand is that God does not zap us with his presence and his blessing. God does not download updates into our minds and our hearts as we're asleep. Most of us schedule our computers to do updates at two or three in the morning so it never gets in the way of our work. God doesn't download updates into our minds and hearts while we are asleep. The, The language of scripture is that we are to pursue him. We are to pursue him. And the language of scripture about pursuing God is curbed with the realization that he pursued us first. Book of Philippians, Paul says, I strive 
to make the truth of Christ my own because Jesus has made me his own. Earlier in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is what worship is about, pursuing God. Pursuing God knowing that he has pursued us first. That in in, in the context of his sovereignty and his grace, he takes great delight when his people go hard after him, pursuing him in worship with head and with heart, eager to know truth and eager to be filled with heartfelt devotion. People who are aware of all of those things are those who will be joyfully reverent, reverently joyful, have gravity and gladness, head and heart united to the glory of God, knowing that we are called to worship him. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We would seek the Lord to approach him in holy fear and in reverence. So worship is not a choice. God is the only proper object of our worship. He's made us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That provides uh, the, the, the catalyst for us to pursue him in worship. And then finally this. We'll close with this. And then uh, next Sunday night we'll consider gladness. How joy Uh, becomes central to our worship of God, even in the midst of our reverence and holy fear. So we'll close with this. A people that fears God will be a people who live fearlessly in a fallen world. A people who fear God will be a people who live fearlessly in a fallen world. Isaiah 8 verse 11 says this, The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, This is the Lord speaking to Isaiah. He warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, don't don't live how you're seeing the people of Israel live. Be different. Be different. Be my example. So the Lord says to Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. If you know God truly, if you worship him in spirit and in truth, if you understand what it means, even just a little bit, to approach God with holy fear, with holy reverence, the reality of who he is, the reality of him being your fear, that will shape how you process all other realities. The people of God who live in a holy fear of their triune Lord will not fear what the world fears, will not have the same worries, will not have the same things that get us down, that worry us, that plague us. We will not because we will fear God and we will know that he becomes a sanctuary for us. There's a great story from the American Revolution, certainly a legend, um, and, and you know the, the truth of it can be called into question, but it illustrates the truth beautifully. 
the, the, the British were about to come upon a certain village and so people are sort of in a frenzy, running around, thinking about what they can get, trying to get out of town as quickly as possible because they know things are about to change. There are two men walking resolutely with purpose but certainly with a different attitude, a different aura than everyone else and they pass each other they look into each other's eyes and they know that there, there's something that's shaping the way that they're approaching this situation different than everybody else. So they walk a couple steps past one another. One of them turns around, says to the other to his back, what is the chief end of man? The other turns around, smiles, says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you fear God, you will not fear what the world fears. You will not fear, you are not filled with worry about worldly possessions, about, about the numbers on your bank account and what it says, about the possibility of what's coming down two, three months from now. You will not fear that. Fear God. Fear the sovereign Lord. Fear the one who is in control. And that is why, uh, why it's so wonderful when we read in Isaiah chapter 8 that if you know that about God, if you fear him, if you give yourself in holy fear to him, what does he become? He becomes a sanctuary. He enfolds his arms around you. That's what worship is. Coming, giving our best to God. Worshiping him with gravity and gladness, head and heart. Joyfulness and reverence. And he enfolds us into the life of that triune God. He brings us in. He is a refuge for us. And he fills us with that which we need. That is why gravity leads to gladness because the God who is enthroned above all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he becomes a sanctuary. You realize his power. See, you have to take time to realize how powerful he is. You have to take time to realize how holy he is because when you take time to actually think about his character and his might and his glory and his holiness, when you see things like he, he is a sanctuary and he is a refuge and he is a strong tower, that is how it leads to gladness. That is how joy springs forth in the heart of a true worshiper. God is so holy and yet God becomes a sanctuary to those who seek him and to those who trust him and to those who fear his name. If we understand that simple truth, that the God before whom we bow in holy reverence becomes a sanctuary, a refuge, a strong tower, then we will be on our way to becoming joyfully reverent. Joyfully reverent. Not sacrificing one for the other. Striking the right balance that we see in the scriptures of knowing God with our minds, knowing truth with our minds, loving him with our hearts thirsting for him in our souls and seeking his glory in all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, to you be the glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be assured of your love, that you become a sanctuary to us. Father, pray that we would be filled with holy fear before you, reverence, and yet, Father, that we would be filled with great joy, knowing all that you do for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, how great you are, how great you are, God. We give you all the glory in, in, in this hour, on this day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's end.